Hi, and welcome to this Ropes and Gray podcast. I'm Laurel Fitzpatrick, co-leader of the firm's hedge fund practice. And today we're having another in our series of credit fund podcasts. This one will be focused on treaty funds. I'm joined today by two of my tax partners, Jim Brown and Adam Greenwood. I assume we uh, we have people listening that uh, some of whom are very experienced with treaty funds and some of whom probably want to uh, know what a treaty fund is. Should we just level set actually at the beginning? Um, for starters, let's talk about the problems for non-US investors and what they need to consider when investing in funds where there's loan origination. Adam, you want to take that one? So as a general proposition, non-US investors uh, have to consider a number of tax considerations when making investments in loans and negotiating and structuring loans uh, directly or through uh, investment vehicles that they generally have not had to consider when making investments in traditional private equity funds. Non-U.S. investors generally are able to uh, freely invest in traditional private equity funds that buy and sell equity of portfolio companies without any tax event, it is actually much more complicated for non-U.S. investors to be participating in credit investments. U.S. tax code provides an exception for non-U.S. investors to be traders in stocks and securities from being subject to taxation. However, a similar exemption does not apply generally to general loan origination or financing activities that can give rise to a trader business. If a non-U.S. investor is treated as engaged in a financing trader business, it can be required to file U.S. federal income tax returns on an annual basis and pay income taxes as if it were a U.S. resident. And non-U.S. investors generally will also be subject to uh, an additional 30% branch profits tax, resulting in potentially uh, an effective federal tax rate of around 46%. This is pretty substantial consequences of being treated as engaged in a trader business. And so uh, non-U.S. investors are keenly focused uh, on how credit funds are managing this risk of being treated as engaged in a trader business and making sure that they are uh, not subject to additional tax returns in in jurisdictions uh, and suffering significant tax leakage uh, on their investments. And I guess they're Uh, concerns for tax-exempt investors, too. Jim, do you want to address those? Sure. One of the important um, level set points to make, though, is that loan origination activity itself is not subject to tax in the hands of a tax-exempt investor. Um, That's because unrelated business taxable income, which is the measure of the amount that tax-exempt investors are subject to tax, does not include interest income or capital gains. Um, And it also doesn't include other income, including fees, that are earned in connection with the the making of loans. However, um, unrelated business taxable income, or UBTI, does include um, so-called debt financed income, which is income that is earned on assets that are acquired with indebtedness. And so, uh, because a lot of credit funds are levered, um, they would otherwise generate UBTI as a result of uh, debt financing. And so the common way uh, that exempt investors invest in assets that are debt financed is through offshore corporations. Because uh, 
normally the offshore corporation, when it invests in a trading and stocks and securities fund, uh, would itself not be subject to tax. But for the reasons that Adam mentioned, um, when the uh, when the offshore corporation is engaged in a loan origination business, it is subject to tax on its effectively connected income, just like any other non-U.S. investor. Therefore, uh, for all practical purposes, when the loan origination activity is going to be debt financed, in order to avoid any U.S. tax, the exempt investor is sort of in the same place as a non-U.S. investor because they need to invest through an offshore corporation, which is itself an entity that would be subject to, to trade or business tax in the way that Adam described. Thank you. So, so that's the problem that investors face. Um, what do we mean when we talk about treaty funds? Well, many non-U.S. investors will try to avoid all origination activities and perhaps try to become extremely passive debt investors. Uh, and for example, many CLO issuers are organized as non-U.S. vehicles that are able to earn U.S. source interest income and not be subject to tax on that income because of the limited nature of their permitted investment activity. And that interest income qualifies for something commonly referred to as the portfolio interest exemption, providing a 0% rate of taxation to non-U.S. investors who uh, realize U.S. source interest income and are not engaged in a U.S. trader business. A treaty structure accepts that once there are material loan origination activities being undertaken in a fund vehicle or directly by a non-U.S. investor, that they may be treated as engaged in a U.S. trader business and thus ineligible for that portfolio interest exemption. And instead, what they try to rely on uh, provisions in the U.S.'s network of tax treaties with other jurisdictions that also provide relief from taxation. And in this area in particular, various treaty structures rely on specific rules stating uh, to the effect that a non-U.S. investor eligible for benefits under a treaty will not be subject to taxes in the United States uh, when treated as engaged in a U.S. trader business as a result of activities carried out on behalf of that non-U.S. investor through a so-called independent agent. And for those investors, if they realize, say, interest income, uh, as a result of activities of an independent agent, that interest income is then taxed at the rates applicable under the terms of that U.S. tax treaty. Uh, in many tax treaties, that rate can be down to zero. At a more granular level, uh, what it means to have a treaty structure is uh, can typically mean one of two things. Uh, one structure is commonly referred to as a bring-your-own treaty structure, which seeks to uh, secure capital commitments from investors who are eligible for the benefits of a tax treaty between their home jurisdiction and the United States. And those investors will typically be investing in uh, a Cayman Islands or Delaware limited partnership. And they will have general partners that are uh, unaffiliated with the investment manager. And alternatively, you will sometimes see funds that try to utilize a treaty structure 
for investors who are not residents of jurisdictions that have treaties with the United States. And in those situations, the funds will organize pooled vehicles, typically either in Luxembourg or in Ireland, that themselves are capable of being eligible for benefits under uh, the tax treaties that the United States have with Luxembourg and Ireland. So, so let's look at them one at a time. Um, Jim, what are the core features of a bring-your-own treaty fund structure? So the bring-your-own treaty uh, fund structure is, as Adam noted, premised on the reliance on the investor's um, status under its home jurisdiction treaty. And, um, and, and so the treaty structure itself um, is designed so as to ensure that those benefits can be relied on by the fund. And the principal feature is that the fund itself needs to be treated as transparent in the investor's jurisdiction uh, because only um, entities that are treated transparent in those jurisdictions would allow the fund itself to look to the investor's treaty to determine whether the benefits of that treaty are available to the income of the fund. And so that's the, the most critical feature. The other features uh, are actually similar to those that relate to the other treaty, the Lux Co, the Irish Co treaty structures. And those principally are uh, that there needs to be a um, investment management agreement and the manager needs to qualify as an independent agent. The, the rules for qualifying as independent agent, generally speaking, are the same for all the jurisdictions, so that part of it should be relatively straightforward. So one of the issues that arises is that the types of funds that are transparent in the, um, the home jurisdictions would default to be treated as transparent in the U.S. One of the concerns of these investors is um, return filing in the United States and also state and local tax in the U.S. And so to avoid those requirements and liabilities, you know, these structures often involve um, the investor investing through a separate entity, which is transparent in their home jurisdiction, but that checks the box to be treated as a corporation in the U.S., some funds actually organize themselves such that the fund itself um, checks the box to be a corporation in the U.S., even though it's transparent in the home jurisdiction. But there's a little bit less uh, certainty about the ability to claim treaty benefits in that circumstance, although I think that the probably the predominant view is that you can. So, Adam, I'm, I'm sure we can. that means we can tell, uh, tell investors that they've eliminated all U.S. taxes and that this is just the, the silver bullet, right? Yeah. Alas, the treaty structures are not magical elixirs. As noting earlier, the, the benefit of being able to qualify to have a manager be treated as an independent agent of a non-U.S. investor or a non-U.S. pooling vehicle uh, is simply that that investor is not treated as uh, having a permanent establishment in the United States solely as a result of that agent's activities. And there are still several ways in which the structure does not completely eliminate taxes. First, tax treaties have separate articles stating the tax rate that applies to non-U.S. investors on interest income earned by those investors that are from U.S. sources. And certain of those treaties do not provide for a 0% rate of taxation on interest income. There are several treaties that will provide a 10% rate or even a higher 
tax rate on that interest income, which can be very highly problematic. In addition, treaty structures do not solve the issues for taxation around uh, equity investments. So for example, dividend income that may be realized from a corporation is generally subject to a tax rate of 30% as reduced by treaty. And treaties generally provide that uh, dividend income will be subject to uh, a 15% rate or sometimes 5% rate. Certain non-U.S. investors, often certain pension funds, will be eligible for a 0% rate on that income uh, as well. Uh, Another situation where this can arise in the equity area is equity investments in U.S. real estate or equity investments in operating partnerships or operating LLCs. The uh, so-called FERPTA tax rules on real estate investments and the tax rules on investments in U.S. operating businesses or operating partnerships are not trumped by the provisions of a tax treaty. So it's not going to solve those problems. In addition, the tax treaty addresses federal tax issues, uh, but does not clearly provide for uh, a corollary exemption at the state level, which can result in certain complexities there. So that was that was the high-level look at the bring-your-own treaty structure. Um, what about for uh, Lux or, or Irish Co. structures, um, in particular for folks that don't have a, a treaty to rely upon? What are some of the features, for example, of the Irish Co. structure? Well, the critical feature of the Irish Co. structure is that the fund itself needs to be a good uh, treaty resident, so-called qualified resident. Um, and that would mean that it needs to uh, satisfy one of a list of provisions, most of which you know, a investment fund would be unable to satisfy. For example, you know, being publicly traded uh, itself or um, being fully subject to tax in Ireland itself. Um, you know, so minimizing tax is one of the objectives of, of the structure, so those don't really um, apply. Instead, the, the fund itself um, qualifies as a resident by reason of its U.S. and Irish ownership, which as a practical matter means mostly just U.S. ownership. And so the, the, treaty, the, uh, the vehicle needs to be owned more than 50% by um, U.S. or Irish people. Um, and, and, and so that may limit the, um, the number of investors or the amount of capital that the fund can raise, uh, depending on you know how attractive the, the capital can be to, to U.S. Um, investors, and uh, some of the other uh, typical features that are important would be that um, you know the fund needs to be well the, the advisor needs to be independent of the fund. The fund needs to be treated as a principal in and of itself, and, and and so some of the the features that the fund usually includes to support that position would be that that the fund is managed by an independent board, that the individuals on the board are qualified in, in this investment space to make uh, decisions on behalf of the fund, including the decision to hire and possibly terminate the investment advisor. Usually, depending on the risk appetite of the um, the sponsor, there would be a mechanic whereby either the investors in the fund or the uh, the board, or maybe both, uh, can terminate the sponsor. There are various additional costs involved in uh, setting up the structure, um, and then there are a bunch of peculiarities about the structure that are relevant to uh, the local jurisdiction and, and you know Ireland in particular. So. For example, there's a vehicle 
referred to as an ICAV in Ireland, that itself is not subject to tax, but um, is more heavily regulated and limits the amount of leverage that can be used in the fund. Alternative types of funds are so-called uh, Section 110 companies in Ireland. Those provide greater flexibility, but there are also limitations on the activities uh, that the fund can engage in under the regular Irish rules in order to avoid Irish tax. And there are specific mechanics whereby if, if you use, for example, a 110 company for avoiding tax in Ireland, and, and, and so those, those mechanics can present limitations on the operations of the funds. So the ability to remove the GP is obviously something that, um, that managers have to struggle with. Um, treaty funds are still pretty new to a lot of investors. What are some of the other features um, of these structures that may seem unusual to investors? Uh, another feature that is often present is that there's a concern when um, the manager has an equity interest in the uh, in the fund, the extent to which the fund can be independent, uh, or rather the manager independent of the fund, uh, as opposed to some sort of alter ego arrangement. And then specifically, of greater concern, frankly, is when th- the manager is compensated through the receipt of the uh, the equity interest in the, in the form of a carry. And so one of the uh, common features of these funds is that the GP compensation is structured as a fee and including a performance fee, and that can present um, various challenges uh, under the deferred compensation rules um, to ensure that the way that the fee is paid, uh, its measure and the timing of the payment does not trigger any um, penalty taxes under those rules. Sort of other challenges, depending on the jurisdiction of the fund being used, um, is that there can be limitations on um, side letters, uh, the fee deals. There are also issues with how the fund um, finances itself, because depending on whether the interest deductions are needed by the fund in order to avoid local tax, um, those interest deductions can jeopardize the, the resident or good treaty status of the fund itself under the um, so-called base erosion uh, rules. So there are uh, a, a, a bunch of features that are unusual to treaty funds that uh, the investors would not normally see in a normal um, credit fund. And, and Adam, how about once you're up and running the fund, what kind of... Uh unusual operational challenges um, present themselves with a treaty fund? Well, I think there are always uh, some surprises in terms of operational hangups as a result of utilizing the treaty structure. For instance, you are uh, being engaged by a fund with an unaffiliated GP, and so there is some level of coordination with that general partner. And uh, there is also, as Jim was mentioning, um, some of the unavoidable uh, tensions and issues around uh, the risks where your management contract may may have termination provisions in it, or where your incentive payments are not structured as a t- traditional carried interest uh, interest in a partnership, but are instead structured as a more classical fee arrangement. The treaty structure arrangements will also uh, potentially impact. Uh, how you structure your financing and whether you are ever trying to be, say, securitizing investments uh, or otherwise engaging in repo or other asset-based leverage facilities. Uh, For example, one of the pieces that Jim noted earlier is that it is important throughout the structure 
for the activities to be carried on through entities that are transparent under the laws of the investor's home jurisdiction. And whereas you might traditionally be using uh, Delaware LLCs as your uh, SPV vehicle for financing purposes, that is problematic uh, from a treaty perspective. And so you would instead, say, be utilizing Delaware or Cayman Limited Partnerships, assuming that those entities are treated as transparent under the relevant investor's jurisdiction. The uh, other piece in connection with financing that can come up is that in terms of providing more support for our notions of the investor being independent of the manager, uh, or really the manager being independent of the investor, the credit agreements need to also be carefully considered that you're entering into with the fund, uh, and particularly around provisions around when you have an event of default and whether the termination of the manager might constitute an event of default under credit agreements. Uh, in those situations, uh, there may be some enhanced risk that the manager has insulated itself from potentially being replaced uh, and thereby creating another factor that would be considered in assessing uh, the manager's independence from the investor or, or the irrelevant investment vehicles. But as can be seen by the growing interest in the marketplace of executing on treaty structures, uh, there are many benefits that can be obtained as a result of using treaty structures that m many managers have decided uh, some of these wrinkles are worth accepting. Thank you so much, Jim and Adam. We really uh, appreciate your time. And thank you so much to our listeners. For more information, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. And stay tuned in the coming months for more in our series of Credit Fund podcasts. Of course, if we can be of any help to you to navigate any of these challenges, please do not hesitate to get in touch. Thank you.